Welcome to the weekly Dharma Talk podcast from the Columbus Karmateksam Choling Buddhist Meditation Center. This week's talk, given by meditation instructor Eric Weinberg, is entitled Opening Heart and Mind, and is the sixth in our series of talks based on the book Interconnected, Embracing Life in Our Global Society, by His Holiness the 17th Jawang Karmapa. Recognizing our own responsibility for the way we respond to life's challenges is key to the happiness of ourselves and others. We have to choose to stay open, and it's not always easy to do it. So much of what we see and hear about these days is frightening and saddening. But closing ourselves off from it harms us, diminishing the qualities of compassion that are the doorway to happiness and awakening. If we resolve to work with life as it comes, commit to our own basic goodness and the belief in the goodness of others, we can grow little by little toward engendering the enlightened qualities we aspire to. Our task at hand involves growing and developing the needed conditions within ourselves so that they strengthen each other and allow us to keep building toward a universal sense of compassion. Enjoy the podcast. So, this morning, we're continuing um, in this book called Interconnected, Embracing Life in Our Global Society by His Holiness, the 17th Karmapa. This is a really, really fascinating book in a lot of ways because uh, it's a Dharma book without a lot of Dharma jargon in it. He of course talks about where he's coming from and all of that, but he he talks about all this stuff from the point of view of being um, an ordinary human being, and he uses pretty much um, ordinary language to talk about this stuff. I'll probably bring more Dharma references to this subject than he does. However, what he says about it actually resonates in a very deep place because it isn't filtered through um, the cultural references that come with Dharma. So I, I find it very powerful. If, if, if any of you haven't gotten this, it's one book that's worth getting and reading because no one talk on any given chapter really does it justice, and it's not going to be the same as reading it and making your own connections and references anyway. Um, as some of you know, my wife uh, is really involved in establishing restorative uh, practices, restorative justice programs in schools, and what they call trauma-informed education, because in our culture, believe it or not, this is the lead into the talk, because our culture um, seems to be inducing trauma a lot, more and more. And I read sections of this to her, and she's, she finds just incredible resonance with the stuff she's learning at uh, the International Institute of Restorative Practices. So in terms of 
the currency of these ideas and the recommendations for how to practice and work with what we're um, now encountering in the world and in this country and so on, it's, it's really powerful. It is. And um, so I, I, can't, I can't recommend it high, highly enough. A couple of quotes came to mind as I read through this chapter myself. And I just want to offer them at the beginning. I may refer back to them as we go through. Um, one is from a great Indian saint named Sargadatta, who I happen to like a lot. And he said, um, wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. And this chapter has a lot to do with that, that understanding that this concept of self is a separate individual, maybe feeling not connected. We all feel not connected sometime. It's actually an illusion, and it's a harmful illusion for us. The second quote is, it follows right upon this, it's from our Dharma grandmother, Sylvia Borstein, (laughs) a great uh, Zen meditation teacher. She says, the mind is like tofu. It tastes like whatever it's marinated in. So the point is, is that, yeah, on the one hand, there's this nothingness, it's like, Emptiness is beautiful because it accommodates everything. It's like space. Everything appears in space, right? And space itself is precious because of that. If there was no space, if space wasn't empty, where would we be? There'd be no room, right? So that that sense of uh, spaciousness is precious. Um. But space does take on the flavor of whatever it's marinating in. So if we're filling it with our wish to grow and our wish to benefit others, our wish to fill the space with kindness and compassion, well, guess what? Your tofu's going to taste like kindness and compassion. And it'll be interesting because of your wish to grow. If, on the other hand, um, it's full of anxiety and worry, and however we react to whatever it is that we encounter in life, however we perceive what's going on, um, and we kind of uh, recoil from it, well, tofu's going to taste like that. And it's likely that, um, at best, it's an acquired taste, right? At best, it's an acquired taste, and possibly it won't taste good to you or anybody else. So this chapter, in a way, is about, is about this. And uh, it's chapter 6, called Opening Heart and Mind. Before I launch into that... Um, 
let's start the way we usually start with uh, chanting the three line or four line refuge prayer together three times. And um, the first time, just imagine that all the world that is outside of you is a refuge. And the second time, think of all of your responses to that world that you perceive is a refuge. And the third time, just allow yourself to imagine that you're in that space that's being filled with refuge, which of course are the Buddha, which is awakened mind. The Dharma, which is things how they are, how they actually are. And the Sangha, which is how we're all interconnected. Sanje Chudang Sukhi Chugnamla Changchu Pardu Dakni Kyapsuchi Daki Jun Sogi Pe Sunamki Rola Pinchir Sanje Druparsho Sanje Chudang Sukhi Chognamla Changchu Pardu Dagni Kyabsuchi Dagi Jinsugi Pe Sunamki Drola Penshir Sanje Drupa Shog Sanje Chudang Suki Chognamla Changchu Pardu Dagni Kyavsuchi Dagi Jinsugi Pe Sunamki Drola Penchir Sanje Drupa So he launches right into it. It's really the stuff probably that you want to avoid um, when you come here on Sunday. Um, he starts by saying our air of interconnectivity, which by which he means we've got television, radio, the internet, newspapers, if people still read those, and so on and so forth all kinds of interconnectivity, smartphones, um, texting, tweeting. I swear this is an aside, but it has something to do with the tofu and my, my mental tofu, which is, uh, it seems to have Cheeto stains at the end of the day these days. You know, you know Cheetos, they're like that. It's, it, it, they leave that dust on your fingers and it's like hard to wash off. Yeah, I mean, you really have to be skillful 
to eat Cheetos and stay, you know, clean. I like to think that, you know, even if you like Cheetos, you know they're not good for you. That's also something to be aware of. And, the, and he's talking about that. He's kind of direct in the previous chapter that we talked about last week about what our responsibility as citizens is and you know who we vote for and why we vote for who we vote for. And we got to get beyond our mental habits and preferences because we need, um, we really, really need leadership that is, sees interdependence and connection and does what they do out of a sense of empathy, right? And toward the end, he started talking about compassion, and that's what opening heart and mind is really about. So he said, talks about being exposed to many images and reports of violence and misery, and we feel like we're being bombarded. And that our, our response is often to shut down or run away. All this stuff is still out there, even if we seem to be effective at shutting down and turning away. So it's not truly protecting ourselves. He says, on the contrary, we're harming ourselves. We are damaging immeasurably valuable resources within us. It's really interesting, you know, I really often say I need a break and I just find a way to run away. And, you know, everything we think, do and say just reinforces one of the grooves in our brain, one of the habits that we have. Sometimes you do need to take a break, but it's important to do it mindfully and realize that that's what you're doing. Not that you deserve it, not that there's any narrative attached to it, you know, that says, oh, you know, I'm just this way or I need this, so I'm getting that and blah, blah, blah. Don't, you know, yeah, we're not there yet. We're not completely enlightened. We don't know how to work skillfully with all that is. And we'll get there. We will get there. We won't get there quite as fast, however, if we keep running away from what is. You know, so when you take a break, when you take a retreat, that's good, definitely. But do it mindfully and realize that you're doing it literally because you're creating causes and conditions for your own growth and causes and conditions for the benefit of others. So that when you come back, you have just a little bit more openness and a little more capacity to be um, wholesome and full of heart in this world that seems sometimes to not even want that. So that's his first point. Real damage is done by our own hardening of heart to that suffering. 
We harm ourselves when we close ourselves off from others. He said, this makes it especially important that we actively work to keep our mind and heart open. And it is, it's worked for us because we're just not there yet. So, you know, we have to be gentle with ourselves and gradual and take a little step, but take a little step every day. It's kind of like learning meditation. It's way better to meditate every day for five minutes than to just learn the technique and say, okay, when I can find two hours on the weekend, I'm really going to hit it. Uh, no one makes much progress that way for a whole host of reasons, but that's another talk. His point is, figure out what direction is the direction to go. If you want to realize your true nature, which is that you are a Buddha or a Buddha-to-be, then figure out what direction that is and take a step. And every day you can take a little step. In most of the dedications that we do at the end of practices, for instance, you dedicate the merit of the practice to uh, the full awakening of yourself and all beings without exception. So how do we actualize that? That's what he's sort of, that's what he's talking about. He says that to live life that way is noble and valuable, but certainly not easy to do. And it's worth seeking out help from others. It's like, so you choose to do something, but you don't know quite what to do? Well, that's why we have Sangha. That's why we have a community of people who all at least want to aim their um, energies in that direction. And we work on it together. When we can work on it together, of course, it helps us develop qualities um, that are of what he calls immense value to life. And life meaning not just us achieving our goals, but life being life, which is everything. Everything from the little buggies in the ground to the big soaring eagles in the sky. And whatever's in between, which is kind of us, with our heads in the sky and our feet on the earth. Um, He talks about trust after that. And he talks about, and that makes sense, because if we're going to work with each other, it's going to require some trust. He says, as a spiritual leader engaging in altruistic activities, it's part of my training to extend myself unconditionally and unreservedly toward others, holding nothing back. However, I'm warned by well-meaning people not to be so trusting. Can you imagine that? I mean, this guy is like at the top of the heap for our lineage and in terms of even Tibetan Buddhism as a whole. A lot of people think he's the person who will 
be the main leader uh, after His Holiness the Dalai Lama um, passes from this life. And yet, you know, when he says people around him, guess who's around him? It's some of his own entourage, which are monks and lamas and people like that. So think about that. He's really telling us, uh, don't do that. And he probably tells them, don't do that. You know, that's not going to help us. We, we need to grow in a certain direction. And if we marinate our tofu in lack of trust, guess what? It's going to taste like that. He acknowledges that, you know, the people who give him that advice, though, are not just passing on paranoid warnings. There are actually people that want to take advantage of him. There are actually people that politically want him removed, um, particularly in his case. There are people with really selfish interests that um, say wrong things about him, say, circulate lies, do all kinds of things. And he doesn't come out and, you know, say, they will be cursed in future lives for blah, blah, blah. This is funny. I got a text, a, a message, you know, somebody hacked something and got my address and he was asking me how my day was going how was my dharma practice and he had he had the name um he took on the name of Minja Rinpoche who I've met and he and I have had a, just a few times but a, we have a personal connection so I was wondering Minja Rinpoche even though when I see him we can talk he's never texted me before He's never called me on the phone or anything like that. He's pretty big dog, and he's a pretty busy llama. Um, anyway, this guy was pretending to be him, and um, he gave me a practice to do every day that sounded like a good practice, you know, about opening my heart and, you know, being generous and making the most out of every day, no matter what's going on. I liked it. I said, I like that, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then he came back and he asked for money, of course, for um, somebody who was having trouble somewhere. And I knew immediately that this wasn't Minja Rinpoche, which I expected in the beginning. And then I just said, I, I didn't even respond to that. I put out on my Facebook page that whoever is, um, that Minja Rinpoche's uh, contact list has been hacked and if somebody's contacting you using that name it might not be him and he he saw that like really right away he was monitoring the whole thing and he comes back angry and he says why did you have to do that if you didn't want to give me money why didn't you just say you didn't want to give me money he obviously didn't like being outed from all his marks and I just said uh, I'm sorry, I just know that you're not Minja Rinpoche and you shouldn't be impersonating him. And he said, get this, you will be cursed. <laughs> and all your generations for whatever, however many he said, I can't remember, will be cursed 
because of this. And I said, now I really know you're not Minja Rinpoche. <laughs> you know, and it's sort of like that. What Karmapa is saying is even though it may feel risky and you have to be smart, what does the Bible say? Gentle as a dove, but wise as a snake. Um, you have to carry both of those with you so you maintain your open-heartedness and love, but you also continual, continually hone your insight and awareness. And it's important to do that because when people are acting out of uh, bad motivation, guess what? They're still just like us. The only reason they're doing that is because they want to be happy and they think that's the way they're going to get what they want. And if they get what they want, they'll be happy. And if we just kind of shut them down, that doesn't help them or us. If we fall into their trap, that doesn't help them or us. We've got a really kind of cubic centimeter of chance to do something good by maintaining both our concern for them, whoever they are, and being able to stand for how things really are. Being able to stand for the truth. When you meet a great teacher like Minja Rinpoche or Kempo Kartha Rinpoche or somebody like that, Kempo Ujin's coming, uh, in the beginning of November. I hope you all come to see him. That's what you will see. On the one hand, you feel this overwhelming sense of kindness and compassion. And on the other hand, they may not tell you what you want to hear. Uh, particularly, Kempo Ujin told me something I didn't want to hear once. Another story. But, you know, but you know what? They're only interested, they're interested in us in the way that one becomes interested when they see in, inner, interdependence and interconnection rightly, which is that, yeah, we're individual kind of reflections of reality, but at the same time, um, we're, we're completely connected to one another. Visually, I, I like doing this little visual meditation for dedication of merit in that regard. Have any of you heard of something called Indra's Net? It's a, it's a Hindu, of Hindu origin, but it's actually mentioned in some of the sutras, because of course, uh, the Buddha was coming out of that culture, right? Interest in that's really interesting. It's like a net. And all the lines of the net are made of light, made of energy. And each individual is connected by infinite lines of light. And we're all little perfect crystals or mirrors, depending on which version you see. But the point is, is that, yeah, so... There's this one place where the light is gathered and then it spreads out like a rainbow everywhere, which is a lot like some of our practices. So when we dedicate merit, realizing that we're just absolutely 
connected to everything and everything's connected to us. And we allow that light to go for everybody, go to everybody. It's pretty powerful. Um, when Kempo, when I saw Kempo Karthar Rinpoche, I think maybe the first time when he was here, he just stopped in the middle of the Dharma talk he was giving. He looked out and he actually was crying. You could see the tears in his eyes and he said, if you could only see yourselves the way I see you. Because what he was seeing was each of us were that perfect like crystal Buddha reflecting all the light everywhere. That was his aspiration for us and still is, you know. So that's what we're growing towards. And we can't grow towards that by running away somewhere else, no matter how we justify it. So that's the point Karmapa is making in this, this part of this chapter, that even things that we regard as difficult or as hardship are actually true gifts. And we need to keep our hearts and minds open in order for those gifts to kind of manifest. And when they do, it's powerful. He goes on to talk about cultivating radical openness. And what that means is the capacity to truly see and stay open to others when they are suffering. And when you see somebody really suffering, it's hard. You want to turn away. You feel confused. You don't know what to do. Sometimes there's nothing to do. Sometimes presence is enough. That's just me talking. Um, but a kind presence to somebody who's suffering when everybody else is running away is meaningful. And he just says, develop it gradually. You don't want to, on the one hand, you don't want to back off. But on the other hand, you don't want to risk becoming over, overwhelmed and shutting down altogether. And we're human beings and we are where we are and that can happen. So if you can't even get yourself to the point of just being present, which in itself is a huge get in this, in this world, okay, then at least take it to your cushion and really hold them in practice and really actually dedicate the merit to whoever that is that touched your heart. And it could be anybody. It could be a homeless guy. It could be somebody who got angry at you. It could be somebody you got angry at. Somebody almost... Somebody in a big black Tahoe with wheels that were taller than me and tinted windows on the way over here today almost, um, let's just say, ended my journey to give this Dharma talk, okay? He probably was, I couldn't see whether he was distracted driver or not because I couldn't see. He had very darkly tinted windows. You know, first thought was the feds, you know. Black Tahoes with tinted wheels. That's just, that's from the movies. Anyway, um, probably not. But whatever. So, you know, I hit my horn to let him know that, A, I'm here. Because he obviously didn't see me. And uh, we did miss each other. I had to kind of 
um, maneuver. What do I do after that? See, that's the, that's the question. What do I do after that? I can tell you this is like, and go on and on about whatever narrative I have in my head about distracted driving these days and, you know, traffic congestion in Columbus and I can go on and on. Yeah, there's a whole story there. Or I can change it into something like, even though I'm not right next to him, obviously he's moved on, going wherever he went, you know, wishing him to be safe and wishing him to be well and wishing him to not be angry because he got a little afraid when he almost hit me, which is what happens. We get afraid and then, of course, we don't like being afraid, so we get angry. And if we can employ patience, there's a lot about patience in this chapter. Karmapa likes that as being one of the main qualities we need for this. Um, we can let it pass, and then we can find some way to wish him well, which does him some good because we are interconnected. Even if he doesn't know it, we are. And it does me some good because it's just a baby thing. I didn't save the world or anything, but I at least made a step in the direction of being able to do a little more next time. A little, do a little better next time. I, I got this story. I'm, it's not all these pages, don't worry. And, and it's about that. It's about um, the kind of courage that arises from seeing things interdependently. When you know that you're connected, for better or for worse, you know, courage can arise. You know that no matter how difficult things are, uh, you're a part of whoever they are, whatever it is, and it's a part of you. Um, one of my other great Dharma friends, uh, Garchen Rinpoche, when he was uh, first out of Chinese prison camp, he's one of the monks that didn't get away in 59. And um, he was being interviewed and he was asked, what was the most frightening thing in prison camp? And you gotta understand in the prison camps, in his case, they did things like broke his feet for studying Dharma and stuff like that. It was frowned upon. He still got the complete transmission of his lineage in one other one in prison camp, but they had to kind of sneak it in. Um, and he got tortured for it when they got caught. And he said, the f most frightening thing for me was that I could lose compassion for my captors. So you know what his brain is marinated in. <laughs> yeah. I just, it's like uh, when Harry met Sally, I want what, I want what he's having. <laughs> anyway, this was from Cincinnati. Last Friday night, I was standing outside of a barber shop in Cincinnati, Ohio, with a small group of mostly black men when this officer walked over to a group of us. He looked around curiously and said, I don't see a car blocking the intersection. 
While shaking his head, I asked him what he was talking about. He said, someone called and reported that we had a car blocking the intersection. He paused for a minute and shook his head again. In that moment, we both nodded and acknowledged what had just happened. Someone basically saw our group and made a false report. I asked him how long he had been on the job. He said 10 months. He asked what we were doing at the barbershop, and so told him about the barbershop challenge Men of Courage and Ford Fund has sponsored. I asked if he wanted to come inside. He said he wanted to, but didn't want to spoil the fun with his presence. Again, we both nodded and acknowledged the reality of distrust between the community and police officers. I offered to take him inside so he could meet the owners and establish a relationship. I told him that someone has to take the first step to healing these relationships. He said he wanted to, but was unsure of what the reaction would be. I told him it would be cool, and that Jerome Bettis, he's a big, he's great football player, retired now, and host of and a host of other amazing people were inside. He lit up like a light bulb and he said, no way, the bus is in there. They called Jerome Bettis the bus. With a kid-like smile, I said, hold on, I'll grab him and have him come out. Jerome Bettis came out and the officer stood there with his mouth agape before saying, if my dad was still alive, he would be so excited because you were his favorite player. We all stopped and sat in the moment before they went on to take a selfie together. It was one of those moments that reminded me of our humanness, our frailties, and our similarities. In that moment, we were all just men navigating the world without the mask we were taught and trained to wear. I could have taken my offense to the call to the call out on the officer and accused him of being a racist cop. He could have believed the caller and acted based on stereotypes about black men in groups. But we chose to just see each other and talk like humans. It's ultimately a decision we can all make. When he lit up like a kid at seeing his dad's sports hero, I saw a little boy and the uniform no longer mattered. We can collectively choose to see beyond uniforms we all wear. It's not easy and there's a lot of work to be done. But if we can at least start seeing each other, I believe things will get better. So, so that's sort that's sort of what um, Karmap is talking about. We can have like big plans and big movements that we're a part of and should if we can, but it really comes down to things like that. It's like so easy to be reactive based on the stories we've already told ourselves about what's going on in life. 
this happened to me on Friday. I was giving a talk on meditation to the Early Childhood Learning Center that is just like three blocks west of here. Um, it's kind of part of Poindexter Village. It's a public assistance housing kind of thing. It's poor. And when I came in, uh, they're just very busy. They have so much to do, it's overwhelming. So, you know, people said, hi, who are you? And I said, I'm here to do the meditation class. Oh, well, you can sit over there. So I sat over there. There was a yoga class going on with about five people. I thought, ah, maybe I'll be teaching meditation to five people or ten people or something. And after the yoga class, um, they escorted me into this multi-purpose room, and I was supposed to start at three, and I, I said, should I start? I didn't know what to do. Nobody kind of told me what to do. And um, no, she said, wait, I want to get some more people. They ended up gathering people from other classes all over the place. There were like, I don't know, between 30 and 40 people there. I'm not a head counter, so I, I don't know, but it was a lot. And none of them... I shouldn't say none. Few of them uh, were used to meditation as an idea, but most of them weren't. And there were people just going on and being kind of noisy and talking while I was talking and having their own, like, deal going on. And I'm in this multi-purpose room. There are tables all over the place. It was just... Not a conducive environment, you know? And I'd been preparing for this talk, and I thought about this talk, and I just be patient. And so I kept going, and then I made some jokes about, um, just made some jokes about people who were, like, uh, talking. <laughs> and um, that shocked them a little bit. And quieted them down for, it didn't work, you know. And then, you know, I said, okay, now we're, I'm going to do a guided meditation with you the way I do, you know, and I just said, so I'm going to, I kind of went through what the practice was, and I had my singing bowl there and my striker, and instead of striking it with the uh, part with the felt around it, I hit it with the wood. Wing! And it was like, Wow. And everybody was, whoa. <laughs> and I started guiding meditation. And then sure enough, there's one, one person just slouched to the point where they were going, going flat. And I said, it really helps to sit up straight. And then they started laughing in the back. And I said, you know, even if you're bored with what I'm saying or you think it's funny, that's just the thought. So the practice is just let it go and return to your breath. Even if you really hate this, that's just a thought. Just let it go. And I just kept going with patience. You know, it took about three minutes out of the... I think I only led this guided part for maybe six or seven minutes tops. I knew it wasn't going to last long if it ever got going at all. And after about three minutes... You could hear a pin drop. 
and you could feel in the room that everybody was together in this thing. And then I rang it again. I didn't hit it so hard the next time. And asked them to d dedicate the merit of the practice. Honestly, I didn't want to do it that way. I was pretty reactive because, you know, my experience in classes, if you, I got paddled once in seventh grade for talking before class started. Seriously, the bell hadn't rung yet, but once you're inside the classroom and, well, was it Mr., I forget what his name was, whatever his name was, once you're Mr. Cooper, once you were inside his classroom, it didn't matter whether the bell rung or not, you're not talking. So I was just, you know, I have my own kind of programming, right? But that's what this is all about. Our own programming in large part gets in our way. Um, so there's a gradual process of seeing it. And if we base what we spend our time on, um, on these principles of really what are the six perfections, and everybody know what they are? Generosity, ethics, patience, joyful diligence. Actually, joyful diligence is an interesting one because really it's just saying, okay, if you're practicing properly, which means with the wish to grow and for the benefit of all beings. So with aspiration and without selfishness at all at the same time. Um, meditative absorption, which comes naturally if you can practice that way, and then wisdom, which should dawn if you can practice that way. Anyway, if we can work that way consciously, if we kind of imprint those on the bones of our skull, so our brains are always marinating in that, we'll wind up being able to uh, have a fresh and creative approach to whatever comes up. That's the point of these practices. You know, they are really mind training. That's what they're for. Nisargadatta talks about this a little bit in terms of the gradual approach, and he says, well, at first, you're like in a jungle that's full of like ravenous tigers. And when you take an, have an authentic refuge, it's like, okay, the tigers are roaming around, but you're in a protection, you're in a steel cage and they can't get through. The next stage when you get a little good at these six perfections, now you're wandering around in the jungle and the tigers are in the cage. So you can still see them there, but you're gaining some freedom and they're being prevented from harm. Third stage, you ride the tigers. That's when you realize that you're a part of them and they're a part of you. 
Karmapa tells a story about a naturalist who was working for years in uh, Central America studying jaguars. And um, he was like deep in the woods, he was alone, and he realized he was being stalked. His whole life had been devoted to taking care of the habitat for jaguars. That's what his deal was. So rather than running, he just sat down. And the jaguar came and sat down next to him. He doesn't say how long they remained, but it, however, after however long it was they remained, obviously there was some felt connection. Um, jaguar went off in his own direction, and the naturalist went back to his camp. So the encouragement here to practice is simply that rather than leaving at a conceptual level, really take it, really take it to your practice, whatever it is you do in this direction, so that your heart can remain open, no matter, even if jaguars are stalking you. It's okay. If you've already dedicated your practice and your actions up to that point to um, caring for them, it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. He talks about we can enlist our imagination as a supportive condition. And he talks about actually doing what I just talked about. So here's his, here's, here's his uh, visualization practice. We could imagine a tiger coming to attack us and envision ways to stay connected with compassion for this being who is driven by hunger and rapidly losing his territory to human encroachment. We can be creative and think up any scenario that allows us to keep a connection of compassion alive in our heart and mind. Perhaps we imagine we are a villager feeling great compassion while we safely trap the tiger and call authorities to take it to a better habitat. Perhaps we imagine ourselves as a Buddhist monk and try to feel what it would be like to meditate on compassion even as the tiger approaches to eat us. And then he tells the story about the jaguar. The point is, is lean into all the stuff that um, comes up and causes tension, anxiety, and fear. Bring it to your cushion. Sure, we do Chenrezig practice, we do Nundro, we do all the practices, and they are really, really helpful. But also, be a little creative and spend a little time with something that's on your mind, um, something that you're concerned about. Could be um, 
something on your mind about this hurricane that's on its way. There's a lot of people in that, in the path of that hurricane, and it seems to be picking up. Gosh, part of me wants to just say there's nothing I can do about that. There really is, and I'm glad I'm not there, and I hope everybody who's in the way gets, gets out of there. Um, but there's another part of me that says you could take that to your cushion and really meditate on that and put yourself in the path, at least mentally, in the path of that hurricane and figure out a way to be a help, helper, at least mentally, and then, then deeply wish that for people. I'm convinced that prayers of compassion like that are powerful. I'm convinced that interdependence is real. And then when we do that, it's effective. I, I know I've told the story before, but, you know, I'll just briefly refer to it. I have this uh, student on death row that um, after learning meditation, he is very grateful but troubled because he felt better, but the victims of the murder that he committed um, were still full of rage and hate, and he knew it. And he said, I know it's ruining their day every day of their life, and I wish I could do something to help them. And I, we talked about him dedicating the merit of his practice to them. That did two things. First thing was it motivated him to practice every day which is a good thing. The second thing was, after about seven years, they reached out to the Department of Corrections and asked for a meeting with him to reconcile. This is out of the blue. They had not had any contact with him. You're not allowed to have victims and, and criminals are not allowed to contact each other. Um, and they had, a they had a meeting. He had to sign away his rights of appeal of the death penalty in order to have that meeting. So it was a big ask from him, and he really had to lean into his fear of having to be executed. And um, he did, and they met. They met twice. Um, and they were genuinely interested in him, and he and them, and they made a good connection. The second time they exchanged gifts, and the niece of the woman that was murdered um, wanted his prayer beads, which were some Bodhi seeds that I had given him years before, and were the ones that he had used to really pray for them. So he just gave them to her, um, which is wonderful story didn't quite end there because about two years ago he had a new attorney and a new investigator and they <clears throat> under, uh, uncovered some evidence that uh, he had been offered a deal originally that he didn't know about. So he um, so because his attorney dropped the ball and didn't present this, whatever it was, but it would have obviously voided the death penalty if he had accepted it. Um, uh, because of that, 
they're going to revisit the case. And it turns out that even though he gave up his rights of appeal, he'll be able to live. And now he's, I can't say he's content to live in jail the rest of his life, like who would be, right? But um, he does know how to use it. And it's really, really deeply ingrained in him. And that's what comes from leaning into stuff that scares us rather than running away from it. I can't tell you how many times I've met with people in prison that are looking at <clears throat> Buddhism, meditation, all of this stuff as a way to run away. And I always have to give them the bad news. This is why I don't get that many students. I always give them the bad news is like, if you really want to practice, um, uh, it won't help you run away in the end. It's, it's going to be a true transformation of what actually is. Um, so anyway, I wanted to share that with you is those two things, the Cincinnati thing and that as examples, there, there's a lot more in this, um, in this chapter, but we don't have that much time. I just want to say about the chapter that, um, you know, when we talk about Buddha Dharma, Dharma is a Sanskrit word that just means what is. That's it. Things. Dharma means things. It's a common word. And Buddha means awakened. So, Buddha Dharma just means things as they really are. And that's why there's not more Buddhist jargon in my talk than there is in the chapter, because Karmapa is able to talk plainly about um, our relationship to the way things are and how to train ourselves to be in relationship to it. It's not about a fancy practice that'll do this magical thing or that magical thing. I, as you all know, I'm very pro-practice, but it has to start with um, an altruistic motivation and it has to end with an aspiration to enlightenment, which is to um, be the goodness in the net. Just be the goodness in the net. So anyway, there's a few minutes left. I should end the talk right there. And um, if anybody's got a question, please um, come to the microphone. We'll see who's brave. <coughs> well, oh, Jim, he's, see, this is, bravery is actually part of this. He talks about courage in this chapter, too, because it takes all that. So, Jim is our courageous one. Leaning in, huh? Let's yeah, see. you're all right, man. Yeah, yeah I, um, I mean, I, I, I hear a lot, you know, a lot of times compassion, like a tiger, you know, they're animals, and you know that they're, they're going to want to eat you, and I don't feel any anger towards a tiger for being having tiger nature. But with people, you know, that's where my anger goes, because people, you know, are supposed to, because a lot of times there's an exclusion, 
You know, mm-hmm. you're not part of us. Right. And Absolutely. That, that makes you know makes you very angry. Uh, and I have a trouble with the altruism. You know, a lot of times uh, you talked about your. Uh, I mean, we all have road uh, traffic incidents. Everybody in this room does, I'm sure, somewhere. Uh, I just thinking about it. I for you know the year ago or two years ago, and I was in Phoenix, and I was getting ready to done with this uh, trip, and I'm going back to the airport, flying back, and uh, it's traffic, tons of traffic, and I put my t- turn signal on, and I'm going over, and somebody just laid on the horn, just. Phew, you know, I moved back over, and they went by 100 mile an hour. Yeah. And I did not feel any, like, compassion, you know. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel like, I hope that person, that, you know, they have an emergency, and they get, what they, you know, I was just, you know, ah, you know, and that's kind of how a lot of my, uh, and I, I don't know if I could ever get to a point of having compassion a lot of times. Mm. I mean, it, it does, because uh, these people are always like strangers. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll never know who that person was. Right. Never meet that person. They're like some, and a lot of times they become like cartoon characters. And when I think back of like, uh, you know, people that I was angry at at work, you know, my bosses, the real powerful people, and they were mm-hmm. SOBs and I didn't like them, you know, they were full of ego. And, and you know, so I, you know, it's uh, because they, you know, it's uh, uh, persons like in a power, they don't really want to be liked, you know, they want to be feared. Right. And so how do you, you know, have compassion for like an Alf Hitler or some a dictator, mm. you know, or someone who's just absolutely, you know, they basically live by force and brute. And, well, know. that's an interesting question, and that's a good one. Um, it's actually covered in there a little bit. So here's, here's a couple things. First of all, um, as a practitioner, it's important to not get all full of pride that I'm this or I'm that. Uh, he even mentions that Adolf Hitler was a vegetarian. So he incur- <laughs> even though he's a Karmap is a vegetarian, he encourages vegetarians to not be so proud uh, that that's not. Well, there's a a point to that. There's a key point. He's a vegetarian because he understands that he doesn't want to harm other beings, and that goes on many levels. You know from the environment to actually live, killing living beings for his food. And, but he knows that even in farming of vegetables, a lot of living beings are killed. Um, just a plow going through the soil cuts up a lot of living beings. Um, so first of all, for us, we need to maintain our humility. The second thing is to understand that even that guy who laid on his horn and almost ran you off the road, um, he's only doing what he's doing because he wants to be happy. Maybe misguided, but every single living thing is ultimately motivated because they want to be happy. And his idea was that if he got where he was going as fast as he wanted to, he'd be happy. Um, you're motivated by happiness too. The question is, is can you firmly put in your mind that being free of compassion for misguided humans will make you happy? You've got to ask yourself that. If you can go on the, question, on the cushion and contemplate lack of compassion as a source of happiness, 
that will be interesting to see what you come up with. It's up to you. I can't like convince you. So then the third part of it is, is that none of us exist on our own. We feel like we're individual selves. But of course, we've been taking care of our whole life. We think that once we become adults and we're on our own, we're on our own. Well, that's just not true. Who keeps the lights on in this building? Who paved the roads to get here? Who created the energy that got us here, whether it was in planes, trains, or automobiles? You know, we're all depending on each other all the time. You're going to eat food today. You didn't farm it. That guy in the truck, or whatever going 100 miles an hour might have been the farmer that grew the food that you're going to enjoy. I mean, and it's, we all contribute to each other all the time, whether we know it or not. We all wish for happiness. There's no doubt about that. So just in the sense that you know that they're trying to be happy, even if it's harmful. You can have compassion, particularly if it's harmful behavior, because everything arises from causes and conditions. So he's created causes and conditions that frankly aren't going to give him happiness. And who wouldn't feel compassion for that? You see what I'm saying? Yeah. I, well, I, a lot of my insights into myself is a lot of my uh, anger is based on ego. And, you know, most of because I do, you know, I have a relatively cushy life compared to, you know, a lot of uh, people in history, you know, and uh, uh, so things that make me mad in general are like ego. That person didn't come close to hitting me. He just, you know, he was just saying, get out of here, you bum, you know, mm -hmm. I, my, my brain, you know, it, it's just I have every right to get in this lane and you know, I'm, I'm stressing anyway. I'm in a strange city. You know, I, I could justify myself, but uh, uh, so many things like uh, that, um, uh, a lot of my, like like at work, what I was talking about at work, you know, a lot of times I felt like it was really impossible to really, you know, to fit in, you know, and mm -hmm. so that, that just seemed like an impossibility. I knew somebody who would get up early and play golf with these people, some of the big shots, mm -hmm. so a lot of da you know, I don't even know how to play golf, you know. I went to the putting range and hit balls, you know, and a bucket of balls, you know, but that's about as far as I, you know, but so a lot of it is basically just ego and not being able to fit in adequately mm -hmm. and then just deciding, well, these people, I, I don't want to play their game and then just the, the, condemning their whole game. Right. And I think a lot of like in society, uh, an establishment, like, you know, like a lot of the conservative, you know, hated the hippies so much is because they all say, well, we don't want to play your game. Mm -hmm. You know, and so, and then there's a lot, a lot of, uh, you know, religious orders, you know, like, you know, say, you know, we, we, we're having our own game, you know, we're not going to even play by your rules at all. And that, that seems to cause the most anger in society. Yeah. And how's that working for everybody? Not well. <laughs> As Dr. Phil would say, not real good. That's the point. We have to consciously cultivate in our own minds the things that actually will work. That's why Buddha Dharma talks about things as they actually are. Once we know, 
that those six perfections are actually the gateway to happiness for ourselves and others. That's what we spend our time with, and it's gradual. Um, we all have reactivity, but when we recognize it, we, instead of buying into the story and telling ourselves the big, long story about it, you know, you don't have to turn your life into, you know, Les Miserables, for gosh sakes. You can actually have your own story, and you could use everything that happens as a teacher. It's like, oh, that's what happens to me. I, like, have a really big, bad, negative reaction, and I tend to look at myself and I say, oh, I didn't know that was in there. Right? I get really angry with somebody, like, because I have Cheeto stains. And, <laughs> and I look at it and I say, oh, I didn't know that was in there, that level of anger and reactivity. And then I have a choice. I can either tell myself the story about it, or I can take it, and I can look at, oh, um, how can this actually be um, used to learn something about the way things actually are on the path towards liberation? It's, see, that's where it's up to us. It's totally yeah. up to us. I mean, I know what's right, but my emotions, you know, still tend to go a certain direction. Of course. And, you know, that just seems to happen. And actually, Neil, uh, Neil, uh, what was it, wrote uh, Gun, Steel, and, uh, you remember that book? Uh, Diamond. Neil Diamond, yeah, Neil Diamond. Jamin Diamond, Jamin Diamond, yeah, I keep saying. Jamin Diamond, yeah, he, he always, he spoke about the, uh, uh, primitive tribes uh -huh. feeling you're basically being, you know, the people on the other side of the river are bad, you know, and so it's like, the oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, and I, in civilization, how strange civilization is, where we're all kind of like we live in a big city and we all, you know, are well behaved. In reality, you know, in the, in the, the more primitive man is always, if you see a stranger, he's, he's an enemy because you don't know what he's going to do. Mm -hmm. And so there's sort of like, well, I'll talk long enough, I think. But so there's sort of like that. There's that's a human nature is just to vilify the different people. It is, but we can work with it. That's the point. Yeah. The point is, is that's what the that's what what the lineage has given us was a is just a whole bunch of tools that we can learn to work with. A whole bunch of medicines that are good for various mental diseases that we that we have, you can call them karma, yeah. but it's just like, take the right medicine for the disease. That's why we have teachers. They basically diagnose it and they say, this practice could help. It's like going to the doctor and getting the right medicine for something that's making you sick. You know, you don't wanna like uh, take, um, um, an antibiotic if you need a sleeping pill, right? Yeah. Or you don't want to take a sleeping pill if you need an antibiotic. So it's not just take all the medicine. It's not like that. <laughs> We're all individuals. Yeah. And that's why we come together. We work together to figure out, okay, how can we use what's hitting us in life to grow and to develop compassion. We've got to develop it simply because obviously we're not there yet. Yeah.
we have the potential for being there. Yeah. That's it. Well, I'll work on that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Hi, E. Hey, Eric. Thanks for the talk. I just have a funny joke, actually. <laughs> Lay it on me, man. <laughs> <laughs> I was in Phoenix driving my car, and someone tried to cut in front of me, so I honked the horn real hard. At least that was Jim, I think. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. Uh, I do thank you, and there were a lot of levels. I need to hear this today. Um, but I just feel this is for me that I need to bring up. I don't necessarily buy that... Uh, all, all people, or especially all Native people, immediately think that somebody coming in and they come with their fists off. What I've read in history, there are many, especially in this country, that actually when the stranger came, they had already, because of probably their culture, like we would do, mm -hmm. hopefully in our sangha, they came with a welcoming and mm -hmm. set a table for them and, and did, you know. So I don't think... Um, I think it is very individual, and if a group of like-minded individuals gather together, we marinate each other in mm -hmm. trying to be accepting and giving. It just, I mean, I want to go through my life assuming that when I've tra and I've been lucky, I've traveled all over the world, and everywhere I go, the majority of the time, everybody, even strangers. They're sweet and they're kind and it mm -hmm. all connects. And I think part of that's because that's how I already expect them to be. Mm -hmm. some, that doesn't mean they all are. But if I have to place my bed on one side or the other, that's what I choose to do. And then if I've seen once when I was with my sister in China, there was somebody there. And, you know, I just was staring, blah, blah, blah. And we hadn't met. And her operation is very different. and And so... It, it wasn't as <laughs> as good. I mean, you just, yeah, but I think the reality is, no, it is not that all people or all Native peoples come with that immediately, I'm afraid, or I'm going to choose to be afraid and therefore hit attack before I get attacked. No, that some of us and choose, like, I've got a choice. I'm going to first start with open arms. If I have to do something later, mm -hmm. I'll deal with it later. But that's an important uh, the in my intention it's really absolutely. plays a part in what I do. So, or, yeah, whatever. I totally agree with that, by the way. Good. That's... I knew you were a wise man. Oh, got it. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Um, I think it's really important, actually... Um, to have positive regard and also skill. You know, when you get surprised, sometimes you get surprised. I remember being in France. France is legendary for being inhospitable to Americans when I was there in 1980 or something like that. And um, Jeannie and I were traveling and she went to the window of a train station to get a ticket. We were going somewhere on the Eurail Pass. 
and the person was mean to her. She wasn't actually, she was just kind of neutral. And I went up afterwards and she was totally friendly to me. But I, I made a fool of myself trying to speak French. Um, but I tried, and I think that's the thing. Yeah, it's worth it's worth trying, you know. Not and sort of what Karmapa is saying here is lean into it, try. Don't take a huge big step that's going to cause you to close down if things don't go right. Take a little step though, what you can try, what you can handle, but keep going in that direction, and. And it helps put happiness out into the, into your life and into the rest of the world. Is that kind of what you're, yes. something like that? Oh, one more. This has got to be the last one, though. We're way over time now. Hi. Hi. Sorry, I don't know if this one. Um, this is my first time here. Oh, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Um, I really enjoyed the talk. I just wanted to say that I think it's really important to remember that socioeconomics mm -hmm. play a role into this and there is a sense of privilege as someone who is Caucasian and a male may receive when they're mm -hmm. traveling the world that someone of color and of um, a minority may not experience. Mm -hmm. So I just think that's an important distinction. I do too. Yeah. Thank you. I do too. That's certainly what I was encountering at that childhood learning center. And I had, I had to figure a way to let my own expectations, my own privilege, the sense of privilege that comes from that, I had to let that go if anybody was going to learn anything about meditation, you know, which was my goal. So you're right. I, I just want to add that it's like we're kidding ourselves to think it's easy to do. It's not. You have to kind of, oh, there's, there's that. That's in me. Oh, damn. More stains. Okay. Well, you know, the Dharma is just a big washing machine on one level. So let's, Marilyn's laughing. I love that. Uh, so... So let's dedicate the merit of having gathered together because this is just extraordinary that people gather together with so many just good intentions, positive motivations, and aspirations to um, live a life aimed at waking up to the way that things actually are. So we dedicate the merit of having gathered together to hear this talk um, for the benefit of ourselves and our own awakening and also for the awakening of the whole world so that this place engenders all the best qualities of refuge, safety, and happiness, care, concern, compassion, and kindness. And of course, um, laughter. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
Thank you for joining us for this week's Dharma Talk. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. To learn more about the Columbus Karma Teksum Choling or to donate to support our Dharma Talk series, please visit our website at columbusktc.org. The opening and closing music for the podcast is Tibetan Flute Song by Tamding Arts at tamdingarts.com. Please join us again next week for another Dharma Talk.